Hello, and welcome to Right Care Baptist. Today, Henry and I are with Dr. Martin Struber, and we will be talking about phase of care mortality analysis. Dr. Struber, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Jake. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your, your background in clinical practice? Well, I trained in, uh, in Germany, cardiac surgery, and uh, I was working there at uh, some, uh, I would say, big institutions, both on the um, academic center and then later in the big private hospital. And then uh, six years ago, uh, I found my way into the U.S. and to working at a couple of institutions over here, mostly in the in the field of heart failure and transplantation and lung transplantation, but always maintaining a practice in cardiac surgery. And then finally, I got here and working here now in Memphis. Well, it's great to have you on the program. Yeah, I'm really excited about talking about this topic, uh, which I did not know a lot about until preparing for the episode. So interested and uh, in, in trying to help our, our audience learn more about it, which I think it's, it's pretty fascinating. Henry, do you want to kick us off? I'd love to. And, and Dr. Struber, if it's okay, may I call you Martin? And we want to Absolutely. Welcome, welcome you to our, to our health system and to, to the Memphis uh, um, in, in particular, and it was so so glad to have you uh, part of our organization. Uh, what a, what a what a great uh, addition you you brought to us. And I guess first let's start by uh, helping uh, define the the acronym POCMA. P O C M A. What does that What does that mean? This is phases of care mortality analysis. So basically, what it does is it takes us away from. Uh, from analysis of problems in terms of mortality, uh, from a classic uh, uh, mortality ana analysis, into sorting uh, uh, things into phases in order to find uh, definitive things that needed to be um, improved in the system to prevent recurrence of such a problem. Sounds sounds a bit difficult, but it isn't. So when you when you mean phases, does this begin uh, during the pre-hospitalization time, or where do where where do the phases begin in the analysis? You know, if you if you look at a complex thing like a cardiac surgery procedure, um, you start with evaluation of the patient, and the evaluation of the patient is the pre-surgical period, and that is a very important. Thing. Because we need to select the right procedure for the right patient. And um, this is how things work. And the next bucket goes taking the, the journey of a patient. Uh, the patient ends up in the operating room and the procedure is done. Lots of things can go wrong during such a procedure. And I think most people think um, uh, if a mortality occurs, it's usually related to things happening in the operating room. It may not be the case. We will see that later. And out of the operating room, the patient goes into another complex environment, which is the intensive care unit. And on the intensive care unit, lots of things happening. It's a very complex environment. And so also a lot of things can go wrong in that environment. And finally, the patient goes from the uh, uh, from ICU to a step-down environment um, where things um, are less complex, and uh, then at some point he's discharged from the hospital. 
but still we are responsible that we discharge somebody out of our care safely. So we have uh, very well-defined phases uh, in which a given patient goes through for any cardiac procedure, and we can focus on each and every of these phases to define um, where there might have been problems and uh, to define things that we can do better. And so, you know, when I think about uh, mortality analysis, I think about kind of the classic M&M analysis and, uh, you know, what usually comes out of those is, is we're always taught not to blame an individual for the mortality, that there's a lot of other system issues that are, are at play. But in the end, always came away from some of those conferences that um, the blame was being put on a physician or, or some other individual. How, how does POGMA differ from that traditional M&M analysis or, or does it? It does uh, because um, I think the M&M is a product um, of the early phases of surgery or even the early phases of cardiac surgery. So starting in the 70s and 80s and then when I trained in the 90s, it was still that many of the procedures were not that established. So basically, um, people were doing things that were not well established or standardized. And so a classic M&M was basically asking the question to a surgeon, what did you do in the operating room? What did you do wrong? And pointing a finger. And then the surgeon was uh, pointing the finger to the anesthetist saying, you did something wrong to my patient, and it was not my fault. And this was not leading anywhere. So in, later in my uh, position in Germany, when I had to uh, lead a bigger program, I got interested in a concept that was, uh, was called uh, a culture, culture of safety. And that was a different thing. And the different thing was that we were thinking, why do we have still mortalities? And if you look at the industry, like the airline industry, they can fly you to the end of the world. If you go on the plane in Memphis and you want to fly to Cape Town, South Africa, you expect to get there sound and safe. And somehow the airline industry managed to live up to this promise uh, in almost all cases. So the question was, what could we learn from the airline industry to make things safer and to avoid mortalities? And it comes out that the airline industry went through their processes with a culture of safety, starting with how to check in patient, uh, uh, customers into an airplane, how to maintain airplanes in a safe way, how to induce safety concepts to the pilot and whatnot. And this concept was to be applied to medicine as well. So I think today, if a plane crashes, it's very, very rarely a pilot error. It's a different thing. And this happens very, very rarely. So I think this is where this analysis comes from, to look at a process rather than an individual mistake. This method of analysis then, Martin, came out of the whole science of improvement and system analysis then, the 90s and maybe around the early 2000s. Is that, is that when it 
you first yeah, became exposed? That's, that's when we started to think about it. Then we started to think about it. With the, with the PACMA analysis, this was something I personally found out uh, when I moved from Germany to Michigan. Because the PACMA analysis um, was basically applied uh, in the state of Michigan first. It was the uh, uh, Society of Cardiothoracic Surgeons in Michigan, uh, with more than 90 surgeons, who took on this project. And they started in 2005 and 2006 to apply this method to improve their outcomes. And uh, I landed there in uh, 2014, when they almost finished their 10-year experience. And they were kind enough to invite me to their annual meeting. And uh, then I got their full exposure to uh, to this PACMA analysis and having this background that um, thinking about a uh, culture of safety, uh, I found this highly interesting. And I think uh, they did such a great job with this PACMA analysis that it went from there after some publications and it was taken up now by most cardiac surgeons and the SDS as a, as a national um, cardiothoracic surgical community. Now, this sounds like a topic that uh, we may even need to bring on our other, our sister podcast uh, series, the Connecting the Dots podcast that focuses on the continuous improvement in, in healthcare. It definitely seems. Um, I think, I think there's a very, very parallel development uh, mm -hmm. that we go from, you know, from blaming into an analysis of a process and uh, the idea to induce uh, safety into each and every process. And so, you know, to get into the nuts and bolts of, of how to do the analysis, you know, it, it seems like one of the first things that I was reading about when I was looking through the SDS uh, guidance web on the website was uh, trying to determine if this was an avoidable mortality or an unavoidable mortality. Uh, I would assume you'd go through every mortality that you have and try to answer that question. In theory, there is no unavoidable mortality, in theory. I mean, other than an earthquake or the hospital going on fire, um, everything has a reason. And uh, there's uh, what people describe mostly as a unavoidable mortality is something that happens and is not well explained because it is a, a sequence of uh, um, mistakes um, that leads in the end to a mortality. It's not a one root cause. It's a series of events that went wrong and uh, created the problem. So I think if you rephrase or if I try to re-answer your question, it goes into, um, is, is there any singular root cause for the event, or do we have to think uh, about a sequence of minor events uh, that led to the unfortunate outcome? I think this is more like what we are thinking. Yes. And so, you know, you mentioned the phases, and it's very prominent in the name, you know, PACMA, the phase of care mortality analysis. Are there different ways that you analyze each phase to try to get at that root cause? How does that how does that work in practice when you're actually doing the analysis? In, in practice, uh, we have um, we have a great team who put this together. It's a lot of work. 
you cannot just go into a conference and then uh, people, somebody's telling a story. You have to really look at the charts and at the data. And it starts with, um, did we really, did we really have all available data and did we do a good job with the assessment of the patient? That is a very important thing. And that would be the, the, the pre-op phase that you were, you're pre-op phase. Because we found, or everybody found out, that uh, about a third, maybe up to 40% of all the errors happened in the pre-operative phase. Just case selection in general. Case selection, yes. And uh, it's about a third uh, that happens uh, in the in the operating room and on the ICU. So these are the two biggest buckets that needs to be addressed. And so this is what we focus on. And what we focus on is basically the preoperative uh, assessment and the first 48 hours of care. Because we think in this time, we can identify 80% or more of the problems. Um, and uh, downside of it is we are not that focused on the later part of it, uh, which, which gives us another 20%. Uh, but uh, the later phase when uh, patients are discharged or the step down, if there something is happening, uh, these are very rare events. And uh, and uh, we need to focus on the first, first 48 hours and the preoperative time. Martin, that, that sounds very similar to what 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 I'm involved in with, with safety event analyses. And that process sounds very similar to what you do I, in pop I believe, I believe it's, it's the same thing under a different name mm -hmm. we, we do it's called root cause analysis squared is the name of yeah. the, the process that we go through and in that we we look to any variance in a, a policy or a procedure that may have led to a safety event when you're going through then your pocma analyses uh, do you look do you, do you try to un uncover or flush out those variances to a standard or to a policy or to a procedure as, as a potential explanation for uh, an untoward event? Yeah, well, I can give you like a couple of examples. So one, one easy example would be uh, we, had a recent, we had a recent event that we analyzed and uh, we found out or we had to talk about a patient after a um, well, people will call it a very low-risk uh, cardiac procedure and uh, dying uh, of pneumonia later. And uh, it sounds, sounds simple, but we found out that this gentleman had a smoking history for more than 100 pack years. That is remarkable that you can do more than 100 pack years. But our mistake was that this patient, this patient ended up on the operating room table uh, without a pulmonary function test. And so we, we had to go into the process and say, okay, how do we handle pulmonary function tests? Do we have pulmonary function tests on all of our patients or do we just do it on the select patients? How do we handle emergencies? How often do we want to have pulmonary function tests? And how do we make sure that in a case, um, where there is no pulmonary function test, somebody asks, why is there no pulmonary function test? Because 
in this case, the pulmonary function test wasn't done because the pulmonary function of the patient was improved. Okay. And that is a that is a major mistake, of course, that we didn't realize that this was not just a mistake by patient not going there or something. It was a mistake on our side not to ask the question, why do we not have this pulmonary function test in this case? Because if we would have had this, we know the entire thing would not have happened. So that is a classic thing, I think, for root cause analysis and how we can improve our processes in the preoperative evaluation phase to make sure that this is not going to happen ever again. I think that's one example. Another example would be we have a lot of referrals with patients with high comorbidities. And like uh, people coming in with uh, heart disease in combination of liver disease. How do we quantify that the liver disease is prohibitive to a cardiac procedure? How do we do that? And uh, now we establish that we do, of course, uh, the MELT score for, for liver disease in this patient to make a determination if we can offer cardiac surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass to a given patient or not. So these are these are elements that come into into the pre-operative bucket as a well a standardization mainly uh, of of different different processes uh, to determine if we can offer uh, safely a procedure to a patient or not. So, so you've incurred really two, th those are two great examples where as you establish a standard, for example, how you get who needs pulmonary function studies before you go to the operating room, what is the, what is the standard liver function that, that will safely allow the person to go through this perioperative yes. event? Yes. What have, have you, by, by uncovering these policies that you need to have in place or procedural uh, steps you need to go through in order to get this person safely to and through the operative event. Have you bumped into any barriers or any any things that that uh, that you realize? Oh, oh my! This is this is a bigger problem than than we thought for us to solve. Have you bumped into any barriers? Any examples of barriers that you've encountered and and successfully removed? I, I think the main the main um, barrier. Uh, that was removed was to get the uh, surgical group, the surgeons, to work cohesively as a group. Uh, because the main barrier is if a referral comes in and one surgeon says, uh, uh, we can't offer cardiac surgery because of the liver disease. And the other one is saying, no problem, I'll do it tomorrow. Um, how, how can a referring doctor decide which one to choose from? Yeah. There are mixed messages, and we can't have that. There needs to be a standard that everybody is accepting and everybody adheres to. So it doesn't matter anymore if you refer a patient to a surgeon A or surgeon B, the answer will be the same uh, because it's based on, uh, on a system and it's based on facts. And it's based on a on the standard. Martin, that's a that's a fairly huge, huge accomplishment then to have everyone 
agree then to a set process by which we all agree that this patient goes to the operating room or it doesn't. Uh, so congratulations on that. That is no that is no small accomplishment. Along those same lines, people do, I guess, have different risk tolerances. And so what do you do when, I guess, you have that disagreement or you have a case where that the patient is likely to die from their heart disease if you don't do the operation, but at the same time, their liver disease puts them at very high risk for dying after the operation or during the operation. How, how do you balance that in these cases? I mean, that is a very important uh, question uh, because um, what PACMA did uh, in some centers is a very bad thing. It led to um, all surgeons become risk adverse because um, hospitals were incentivizing uh, surgeons not uh, to take higher risk patients anymore. So everybody is avoiding any risk and thereby turning down a lot of patients. But that is not that is not the real uh, benefit of PACMA just to send everybody with significant risk away. The good part of it is to improve the system that we can handle patients with higher risks appropriately. And I think this is the real part where, where PACMA is helping. So, for example, um, if you take a complex patient into the operating room, you, you think in uh, some uh, famous institutions, let's say like Cleveland Clinic or something, uh, a patient may have a better chance of survival as if you do in a county hospital in Africa. Why is that? It's because the standard of care in the operating room and on the ICU is very different in Africa as it is in a high-level institution. So what PACMA is helping us is to guide us into making improvements in the management in the operating room and on the ICU uh, to be able to offer uh, care to patients with complex diseases. So one uh, early um, uh, investigation I did even back in Germany was uh, to the effect if you have like two experienced surgeons scrubbing in the same case for a given high-risk patient. You can look at it and you find out that all markers are better. You cannot offer this service all the time out of economic reasons. But if you do it in high-risk patients, you have better outcomes on the patients uh, when you work with, with two surgeons um, uh, in, a, in a complex scenario. And I think this teaming up is, is is one thing. The other thing, of course, is you know to help the environment. What do I need to have in an operating room to have a safe environment? Um, how does the ICU environment work on a on a safety basis? I think when this all comes together, there are lots of things that can be upgraded, and uh, it's not. It's not rocket science most of the time. It's simple things. You know, like um, you need to make sure that somebody getting out of a cardiac operating room has an NG tube to prevent aspirations. That's a safety thing. 
and you just need to make sure that every patient getting out of the ICU has an NG tube. This sounds simple, but it's very important. And these little things improve the safety and the outcomes um, uh, of, of all of these people. And if you do a lot of these things, you create out of a sudden an environment um, that you can uh, take on complex patients and have uh, better than average results. There's one more thing that, that we introduced into this process, and I, I think uh, that's probably important to recognize. We, we are dividing our patient population now into kind of a standard and in a high-risk group, given this 5% mark, because the standard, so-called standard patients go on a fast-track uh, recovery plan. We expect them, you know, to go fast-track, to be early extubated and uh, leave the ICU early and finally uh, discharge from the hospital. We know that more complex people need more complex care after the surgery. So there is a different uh, algorithm of care uh, for, for a complex patient. So it's not only that we, that we uh, discuss higher risk patients in the high risk conference. It's also a determination of a patient pathway in the hospital. And the majority of patients goes into um, fast track pathways, but the complex people that we can identify uh, follow a different patient pathway with more people involved, with more interdisciplinary care. And I think with that, uh, we, can, we can treat them better uh, because it doesn't make sense to put somebody on a fast track um, when you don't have the right resources to cover all all ends uh, that needs to be needs to be done. So it's not only a selection tool; it's also a uh, very important tool uh, to choose uh, the right patient pathway in the hospital. And you know, you mentioned the airline industry earlier, and we we're talking about continuous improvement, and a lot has been said about checklists, especially surgery checklists, but you mentioned keeping up with all these little things you need to do. How, how are you doing that in practice? Are you just expanding on the checklists that are out there or how do you do it? Well, uh, a couple of things. One is uh, for the OR environment, we indeed run checklists. And uh, like in the airline industry, uh, we run a, uh, a checklist that we have everything in the room before we start. We don't have people running around and fetching things that may not be there or something like that. We created uh, specific rooms for cardiac surgery that we have the standard things in the room. And we need to define that we have everything in the room before we start the surgery. So this is not only a standard timeout uh, that has to be done. It's also a uh, check that everything that we need for this procedure is available and there. It starts with little things like you have the right heart valves you want to use, uh, you have uh, the staff on board, you have the blood products in the room, you have the echo machine, you have an anesthetist who can operate the echo machines and read it. Um, you need to have your large lung machine, the right cardioplegic solution. Everything needs to be there before starting the surgery. So that that is a that is a um, standard checklist item like you would do before starting an airplane. 
We just check that everything is there and everything is functional. So that's a checklist. Uh, it's a checklist thing. And the other thing is um, what we do is there are standards out now. Like uh, you can do a uh, average mortality uh, prediction uh, using uh, the SDS uh, data bank. And whenever we calculate a increased risk, we put the the bend the mark uh, at five percent. So if we're approaching five percent of mortality risk, um, we discuss this case in a in a high risk conference with multiple people on board. So it's not a given cardiologist or a given surgeon who make their decision alone. It's a team looking at the at the data and making suggestions. Um, uh, what can be done to improve the risk, to accept the risk. And it may even be uh, that people say, okay, um, this is a high-risk procedure and we need to provide uh, specific resources for the day, for the case, um, to make it, make it happen. So, so Martin, around that, then, so around that, that uh, that threshold, if you will, for establishing this needs to come before the high risk case conference, the high risk CD case conference, and and as I as I understand that case conference has been in place for perhaps two years, um, give or take a little bit of time, and how then are those are cases then that that are, are permitted time for the collective body to gather and to discuss and to review the data. How are you taking steps to, to evaluate the, the emergent or the, the, the transfer of someone whose status is, is not as stable? Are you, are you afforded that same period of review or how is that handled? No, I, I think we cannot. You know, if somebody comes in with an emergency, um, we, we cannot just wait for next week conference. That's not doable. Uh, so what what we are doing is, if somebody if somebody uh, comes in uh, with an emergency, uh, there is uh, already a team structure with the surgeons. So let's say you know, call surgeon is called for the for the emergency, and if there's any doubt or any question, uh, there's a knock on my door, and uh, we say, hey, what, what's your opinion on that? And I do the same thing with my colleagues. If something is coming up that is not clear, uh, we team up and get everybody's opinion on it, at least from the surgical side to say, okay, is this really uh, a good case to move forward? Um, and uh, of course, if there's an alternative, we will, we will ask uh, cardiologists to, to weigh in as well. But usually uh, these uh, emergencies are kind of catastrophic events uh, that uh, we have to team up and uh, we need to talk uh, and it's not a person uh, it's it's a team decision and so we've been talking about SDS and cardiothoracic surgery for this episode but has this spread to other surgical specialties or, or even outside of surgery well we talked earlier this is basically a, a way um, to apply standard uh, safety concepts in medicine. This is just a way, one way to do it, I think. And there are, there are many different ways to do it. Um, and uh, it, it is very valuable in a complex thing uh, like, uh, like cardiac surgery, 
what I know is it spread to other specialties, um, especially into, into neurosurgery. Uh, because in neurosurgery, out of the sudden, well, out of sense, the same process, it's a high risk thing. In neurosurgery, the pre surgical evaluation uh, was getting more and more attention and room in the last years than it was in the early times. And uh, so I think for, for neurosurgery, uh, there are similar concepts uh, going on. But the same thing can be can be done for vascular surgery or for other surgical uh, procedures. And probably it's also a way um, not only to analyze mortality, but to also analyze morbidity or what would be called in the, in the allied industry near misses. That's very important to also collect near misses uh, because then you can prevent harm before it happens. And so we try to collect not only mortality, but usually all the morbidity and mortality uh, conference uh, to also include near misses uh, and uh, to, to adapt the system to avoid real catastrophe. Well, this has been extremely informative, Jake. I, I can see Dr. Struber uh, joining a connecting the dots discussion with, yeah. with Skip Stewart uh, in his future, can't you? Oh yeah, I definitely think we're gonna have to put him through the ringer. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Struber, this has been extremely helpful and to bring in this type of uh, root cause or POCMA analysis to the operative theater, I, I think we, 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 we learn a lot uh, as, we, as we do this step-by-step -step analysis of how can we avoid harm? But then when harm does occur, how can we prevent it uh, perhaps in the next case or the next time that we go, go through the operative theater? And, and, and Jake and I really appreciate you taking time out of a very busy schedule to meet with us and to record this for, for others to listen. We, we really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you so much um, you know, for, for joining us. And thank you to everybody for listening to Right Care Baptist. Remember, if you scroll down to the bottom of the show notes, you can find the link to the CME survey where you can uh, redeem your CME credit. Thank you so much. Oh yeah, I definitely think we're going to have to put him through the ringer.